Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. All right, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. For a large chunk of these older episodes, I've had to cut the original intros as part of a migration process. So all that means is we're going to get straight into the interview here with the name that you clicked on. No warm-ups, no preamble, just a straight one, two and in. You ready? One, two... Working, um, doing our own podcast for that Patreon. Right, I uh, saw that. I saw the Nickelback cover. <laughs> yeah, the Nickelback cover, the cover that'll forever haunt me. <laughs> I uh, mean, I mean, I saw that and I thought, you know, you got to give the fans what they want. Well, I put it up <laughs> as a joke, like. So like the band never sent me any songs that they wanted to cover. So I was like, okay, well let's 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 put some stuff up. And I was like, let's get a general vibe on how everybody's going to be, how how this is going to go. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I think people are. I'm going to turn it myself up just a little bit. I think people are a little crazy, and like it's the internet. So they were like, fuck yeah, Nickelback baby. 
So your new, your new record, obviously, Brave Faces Everyone, came out this year. Did the release of that record change anything for you on a sort of um, financial basis? Was there more money coming in, I suppose? I mean, there should have been. <laughs> uh, I mean, the album came out right before COVID shut the world down. Um, yeah. So, like, we had all lost our jobs, except for Ruben. And we were, we could like see the future where we could possibly be, you know, paying the bills very minimally, but still have the ability. And it was, it was feeling good. Uh, and, you know, imagine March, March, everything shuts down and it's like, all right, well, all those plans that you made, bye. And of course, you're a band. You make money from touring, selling t shirts, that kind of thing. Oh, that's the only way we make money. Like, we don't make it any. I mean, we we get minimal streaming money, uh, and you know we're we're doing this Patreon thing now, so we're I mean we're just trying to find a way to survive without being able to sell T-shirts to people directly. I feel like it's one thing that people quote marks in the industry only really talk about or fully understand, but publishing. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a publisher? Yeah, yeah. We we work with a uh, Rough Trade um they're great yeah they're great um we were psyched we were about to have a song in a tv show right before the shutdown and then production of that shut down because Uh, so what tv show was it uh i don't know if i can say but it it was like some it was like some crime drama um that we were like yeah we were the deal was in the midst of being done and it was like our first time getting paid for something like that and it was you know great and that's where those nice royalties come back to us and then you know everything sh- i haven't heard any it could still be in the works i haven't heard anything well isn't it it's an interesting topic i was speaking with a friend today or yesterday about how you know you see a band that you know of get an advert and you're like oh they must be making loads of money do you think that's the case i think it depends on what you know what company it's for or what it's for this like you know fully full disclosure are and the deal for the tv wasn't like mind-blowing but it was more than a you know indie punk band is used to getting yeah yeah well of of, of course i mean there's there's like you know a thousand pounds in in real like a normal job is is an okay amount but for then an indie punk band that's a lot Oh yeah, absolutely. There's, there's there's double standards there, massively. Yeah, I mean, we were looking like that deal was coming in, and you know, with how our splits break down on the publishing side, a few, you know, it was like, oh, well, rent is covered. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, which for most people is like the bare, it's like the bare bones of living, right? Yeah, <laughs> and if, listen, if rent, and well, I mean, the great thing is, is like most of us don't have rent right now because we were on tour, and so we like gave a, we were supposed to be touring from like. January when we did the Menzo's tour through to like we had dates booked through the beginning of next year with like two to three weeks off in between each tour. So we all gave That's up our insane. apartments. We, you know, it was like we went home and now Meredith and I are at her parents' house, Kyle's at his grandma's house, Ruben's at his parents' house, Trevor's at his mom's house. And we're just like, well, we can't really afford to move um because we don't have any income coming in, you know, and unemployment is like moderately helpful right now um but it also took like meredith and i just started getting it and we applied as soon as we got home you know what i mean so it's been a month and a half trying to get 
some sort of help from the government. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you say, you know, you're, you're touring basically 300 days plus a year, that just puts the quivers in me. That's, that's so terrifying. I mean, we've never done it. I think the most we've ever done was like a hundred something. And it was definitely going to be exhausting, but it was, it was the only way forward. You know what I mean? Like it right. was, that was the option or it was cause we all like by losing our job, it was like, well, you either go find another job who probably won't let you tour this much or you tour as much as you can until you reach the point where you don't have to tour as much. Like, I think that's our, when we, when we first started working with our managers, they were like, yeah, our main goal is so you don't have to tour that much, but we got, we got to get you there. Uh, and then you can be more selective and, you know, play fewer shows for more money and like yeah. play bigger shows, I guess is, you know, the dream. And they say that like, it's like the easiest thing to do and it's <laughs> impossibly difficult, but you know, we were on a, we were on a pretty good path. And, uh, I mean, we still are the, the thing with the shutdown is that like it shuts down everybody. So it's not, it's not like we're suddenly like, we're the only ones struggling. So it's hard to be like, damn it. You know, this is so, this is so difficult when, you know, there's people who aren't us who are having a much harder time. Touring is still the sort of best route to share your music, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, especially the music that we play, you know, the punk rock variety. Yeah. Yeah. The uncool variety. I'm sure if you were like making SoundCloud mixtapes, you know what I mean? Or like making something cool and original, not original. I mean, everything's original, but doing something that kids liked, uh, there might, you know, the internet would probably be a good way to do it. Like look at Lil Nas X, you know what I mean? There's no way he could reach that many people if he was just touring, but for what we do, I think touring is the absolute best way, you know, just the amount of people on the Menzingers and the wonder years tours who were like, Whoa, I didn't listen to your band until I saw you were on this tour. And now I love you guys is like, well, that's, yeah, that's why we're doing it. That's, that's the whole reason because it's about just reaching as many people as you possibly can. The wonder years and the Menzingers are just, I feel that the two perfect bands for Spanish love songs to tour with. Oh, absolutely. They're all, <laughs> they're also the two bands we get accused of sounding the most like. So <laughs> it was, it was great. Um, no, I mean, we love both those bands and have for a very long time. And so when they asked us if we wanted to go out on those tours back to back to launch the new album, it was like, yep, that's perfect. That's, you know, done. There's the first half of our year. And you mentioned you got a manager. How, how long have you had a manager? Uh, we started working with them. Uh, it's like a like a partnership. Uh, we started working with them right before we signed with Pure Noise, so like January of 2019. So I we, just saw Pure Noise signed Bouncing Souls for the new record. Yeah, yeah, um, that's cool. How yeah. does that feel to be label mates with Bouncing Souls? It's awesome. We actually we share the same management, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> you automatically get each other's phone numbers. Yeah, exactly. No, like we got to play uh, Stoke for Summer last year with them, and they're just the nicest dudes. And yeah, it was like it was such a fun, fun event, and just like getting to hang out with them and Hot Water Music as much as we have over the last like year has been just mind blowing. Um, and that's not like it's not like a cool name drop, but it was like playing those shows and, and getting to know those guys is incredible. Cause those are, you know what I mean? Those are bands you grew up listening to and you're just like, yeah. Holy shit. Like Chuck Reagan just gave me a high five when I came off stage. You know what I mean? Were there any things that surprised you that you, that you were like, I did not that, exp-, you know, I didn't expect that to be like that. No, I mean, they're pretty well oiled machines at this point, at this point, you know what I mean? And we are 
definitely aware of who we are when we're on tour, which is, you know, despite all of us being late twenties, early thirties, we're still like the young kids, uh, at any tour that, cause you know, we're like the newer band. So we tend to just like shut up and stay in our corner and <laughs> try not to get in anybody's way. You know what I mean? It's funny when you read about bands, like, I don't know, the Libertines spring to mind. Cause I guess they're just an obvious, you know, just such mm-hmm. an obvious one where like, there is that kind of cliche of, of the youngest being the most bray. You know. Oh yeah, no, we would never in a million years do that. That like you're the, you're the antidote. Yeah, we were the anti-libertines. I remember uh, the <laughs> the Hot Water Music guys were talking to our our booking agent when we were over there, and they were like, "Yeah, Spanish love songs is great. Um, they're so quiet and shy. Like, what what's on, what's up with that?" And he had to explain to them like, "Oh no, they just don't want to piss you off. Like, <laughs> it's your show. Right. They want to stay out of your way." And I yeah. think uh, I think we actually I think people respect us for that. Also. It leads to like not. I don't know. I don't like being hated by the touring party. So, <laughs> really, and I'm already, <laughs> I'm already enough to handle. Uh, a lot of times, just like, I, I'm just like a general dad on the road. I'm just like, oh. you know, with my own band. So I try to like. I don't want other bands to already already hate me or, you know, like, I feel like if you hold back and you stay in your lane and do your thing when the time comes where you need to like voice your opinion or, or point out a problem, people are more likely to listen to you than if you were just a jackass the entire tour, you know, like I can be cool with hot waters tour manager the entire tour. And then when they see me blowing up on somebody in Germany for trying to charge us a merch cut, like they can (laughs) smile and, you know, nod and be like, I don't know while I'm just shouting at this person for stealing our livelihood. So you're pretty good at that. You're pretty good at self-management. And I mean, over the years, I've really realized that, you know, the bands that do the best are the bands that treat it like a job, that it is, you know, it's it's like serious fun, I suppose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that also came from, you know, we all started, I started this band when I was 26 and I'm 32 now. So like, we don't have time to not treat it like a job. Uh, yeah. It is a very, I mean, it's a very fun job, but we've always treated it. And it also stems from, you know, Kyle works in a recording studio. I worked in Hollywood, you know, Meredith worked in, in like kind of, we all worked in these kind of industries that were similar to music, you know, fashion or film or music itself, where it's very serious art, uh, and full of a lot of jackasses. So it's like, how do you, I think we were kind of used to navigating that. And so we knew what we wanted to do with our own type of projects. That's definitely something that comes up um, with me. I work at a radio station and I'm definitely, I see myself, I see myself as, as the, definitely the youngers, you know, in the youngers crew. And, and so many of the people that are respected and high up and, and, you know, have been doing this so many times, you know, they do not suffer fools, you know? Oh yeah. And I feel like it's something that I have to learn at some point. Yeah. You don't want to work with, yeah. Suffering fools is a great way to put it. I, I remember I worked with a guy who was like, yeah, my number one rule of working on a film set is I don't work with assholes. And I was like, oh, well, cool. Let's, <laughs> let's figure out how to not get on that guy's bad side then. Cause then you won't be working. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think we're as much of a, as much of an asshole as I can be. We try to, we try to operate on that same kind of principle of like doing our job, show up, do your job, act like you've been there before. I think is something I say a lot, you know, don't, don't act like the amateur if you don't want to be seen like an amateur. Even if you don't know what you're doing, just shut up and watch somebody and you'll learn how to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this has come up a few times in this podcast, just being 
perceptive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I remember our early shows when we didn't know how a sound check properly ran. You know what I mean? When you have like the first time you have a monitor uh, engineer and a front of house engineer, you're like, whoa, there's two of you. You know what I mean? And you can multitask. And I remember the first time we did that, we were like, oh, shit. And, you know, you vaguely remember seeing other people do it. And you're like, oh, I think this is what we do. And you just, you know, by like day yeah. two, you're like, okay, this is how it runs. Perfect. Like, you know, that's how you learn things. Nobody's going to sit you down and be like, here's a book on how to be a touring musician. It's true. And, you know, I, I there was nothing like this that I saw growing up. Specialist subjects records here have made like a DIY how to be a band zine, um, which I need to, I need to get. But, you know, I guess the internet is is helping offering some kind of advice nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's cool. The special subject did that. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, that would have been incredibly helpful. But then again, like I think it depends on what age you're doing it at too. I feel like if I was like a 19 year old DIY kid, yeah, I'd be a lot different than what I am now. But also, if I was 19, would I be listening to somebody telling me how to do it? <laughs> you know, or to be like, "Fuck you, I know what I'm doing." What bands? did you base upon you know your your ideals how to be a band yeah your practices um, damn that's good i feel like a lot of the bands i loved were very dysfunctional and awful people so <laughs> you know what it's i mean it's interesting reading about fucked up i mean obviously the thing is they hate each other i'm sure they don't actually hate each other but it's interesting reading about that what oh what about what about fucked up like they just don't really like each other <laughs> oh i think that's every band <laughs> I think if you're in a band long enough, you're absolutely going to hate everyone in your band. <laughs> like, I think it's inevitable. And I, I mean, there's days where we don't get along um, and you just kind of suck it up and deal with it, you know? And how do you, how do you deal with it? Cause I, I, I get it. You know, it's, it's, it's like in any relationship, you sometimes there are days where you're like, am I crazy? Are they, you know, are they crazy? But I mean, what, do you have any coping mechanisms? Do you make sure you talk about things? Um, I try to. I try to be upfront with people. I try to not let people be passive aggressive with me. Um, but oftentimes that leads to some very uncomfortable situations or very rarely, uh, you know, like voice raising um, and kind of trying to put people not just me, but like people trying to put other people in their perceived place, um, which is probably not a good thing to be doing. Um, I, but I also think that like, there's a dynamic to every band that I wouldn't want to judge or comment on. You know what I mean? So like fucked up might all hate each other, but they might have a dynamic where that needs to exist. Um, I'm not sure, you know, we played with them at that stoke for the summer and they all seemed with fucked up friendly with each other, but I'm sure that we all seemed friendly with, with each other too. And you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it's like a funny, it's a funny thing. I was pretty guilty when Great Cynics was touring, if we were having a bad time and towards the end we, we were, I was guilty of being like, oh, we're best friends, everybody, you know, <laughs> like faking it. I think I saw you on one of your last tours. Yeah. <laughs> that's really yeah. funny. I think that's the first we're time. Getting we're, really, we're getting really, we're getting really, I think that that time was funny. That was in France. That was like, that was the, the blowout period. Okay. Yeah. That's, that makes sense. Um, I think, I think, I don't think we, we try to put on that, that brave of a face for pun intended. Um, yeah, I think that we just don't talk to each other. <laughs> like if you hang out with us at a show, you'll notice how the band breaks off at different times. <laughs> and you'd be like, Oh, okay. That's, 
that's how it goes. And that, I mean, that's fine. That's just normal friendship. And you know what I mean? Some days, some days, you know, certain people are getting along and other days they're not. And I think it also depends on like who drank too much last night or who stayed out too late or who got woken Mm. up because somebody stayed out too late. Uh, Mm. or who's just having a bad day. You know what I mean? Getting wasted doesn't help. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I've largely stopped drinking on tour. Um, mostly because I can't sing as much if I'm drinking every night and staying up late. Um, and like one of the worst blowouts that our band ever had was like, I lost my voice and I, I wasn't even drinking that much, but somebody said something about like, well, this is why you can't stay up fucking drink all night. Blah, blah, blah. And I like lost it on them. I was like, I'm not going to repeat it, but it was, it was a very, uh, have you got a temper? I don't have a, how do I phrase this? I don't have a temper, but I also will reach a point where I'm just like, nope, we're done. We're going to like, we're going to do, we're going to do this now. I'm done. Like letting it stew. You know what I mean? But I, yeah, absolutely. I, I, again, I try, like, I don't want to be the asshole. I don't want to be that guy who's the front man in a band who people are like, yeah. And he's also an asshole and, you know, treats it like a dictatorship. Totally. But the type, but by thinking like that, you're coming, kind of becoming a victim of your own identity. (laughs) The front person of a band, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably fair. It's, it's, I mean, it's a weird weird situation. (laughs) It's, you know, it's a weird situation because a lot of times, you know, yeah, it's in that case in particular, it was tough because, on the flip side, you know, so I, I got accused of staying out too late or drinking or saying, you know, doing whatever. And that's why I lost my voice and we couldn't play. But then there's been other nights where somebody will get mad. Cause like I'll walk straight into the Airbnb or hotel or something. And I'll take the bed. And then mm-hmm. somebody will be like, Oh, you just think you get the bed. And I'll be like, well, yeah, because if I can't fucking sing, we're not playing. <laughs> so it's like, it's the flip side of both ways. So I think everybody, it's just a mess. It's always a mess. It's not even a mess. We call it a circus. You know what I mean? It's the, it's the downfalls of being on the road with somebody who, you know, you just get on each other's nerves and that's fine. That's, you know, that's life. I don't expect to be friends with like good, good, deep friends and not argue with all of my coworkers at a regular job. So why would it be any different at this job where it's a lot more intense too? Right. I feel so many bands are kind of on this knife edge constantly. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's just how it is. I, I don't know how you can. I look at bands who are like, yeah, we're all best friends. And I'm like, but are you? Because, you know, you'll say you're all best friends, but then like midway through another set, one of you will come in and talk shit on the other one for what they're doing. And I just recognize it as like, oh, yeah, we're all just we're all trash people who are hating on the people we work with. And that's fine. That's the nature of touring yeah. so much. Yeah. So what were you doing in Hollywood? I worked for a director. I was his assistant uh, for many, many years. A director we would have heard of. Uh, yeah, his name's Jeff Wadlow. Uh, he directed what was his most his most recent movie was the Fantasy Island reboot for Blumhouse. Uh, before that, we did Truth or Dare. Uh, he directed Kick Ass Two, like right before I joined on with him. So he's oh. done he's done some bigger stuff. How did you get into that? Uh, I went, I, when I was an undergrad, I was a writing major and I was working on like a journalism specialty and I had, I had a meeting with my journalism professor and this was like 2010. So this is like when old media was kind of crumbling and she was, she like sat me down and was like, don't, 
don't go into journalism. Don't do it. <laughs> You'll waste your life. Don't don't hurt yourself this way. And I was like, at the time, I should have realized it was like a. She just got fired from the LA Times, and you know what I mean, stuff like this. And I should have like taken that with a grain of salt. But also, I think she was right. I think she saved me from a lot of things. Like I have friends who came out of that same program and now write. You know, now they're writing in really cool jobs. But for the early years of their career, they were like having to write clickbait headlines and you know what I mean trying to get clicks working working for free yeah working for very little money so I think I dodged that bullet but I went into I pivoted and went into screenwriting uh and so after that I went to film school in LA and then from there as part of that like met my boss and then got the job and kind of worked for him while trying to you know write screenplays that's brilliant. That's so cool. I mean, screenwriting is, I, you know, we, we're of the generation of Seth, of Seth Rogen. Hearing him talk about Superbad and the fact he'd writing, he, he started writing it when he was 15, there must be thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids or adults around the world wanting to break into that industry. Oh, absolutely. It's, I would say, tougher than the music industry. It's, uh, it sucks. It's, uh, yeah, it, it was weird. I spent a good decade of my life on it. Wow. Not quite a decade, like eight years in LA. Um, And so did that start when you were in high school? I had toyed around with it in high school. I was an athlete in high school, so I played baseball. And so I got a scholarship to play in college. So like that kind of, yeah, that kind of took up most of my energy. Um, But I did, I was always writing or playing music on the side, but I never really gave them a fair shake because (laughs) like those seemed like the pipe dream type of things. Like, what do you mean you want to play in a band? That's dumb. You're never going to make money. Like you're never going to do anything with it. And like baseball, because I'm, I mean, you've met me. I'm like six foot, six foot six giant man, like could throw a ball really hard. Baseball was an attainable goal. Uh, yeah. So that was where most of my energy went. And so, yeah, I went to college and I, I blew out my knee and I stopped because I didn't want to do it anymore. Cause it, it was me. Uh, division one baseball is maybe the worst job I've ever had. So you're getting paid, you're getting paid to play baseball. Absolutely not. That's the joke is like, it's a full-time job that you don't make any money on. I, I mean, I guess I got paid in my tuition, but like, even that wasn't enough, you know, for what we were doing. So it was exhausting, like just absolute, like life wrecking tough, unless you love what you're doing. And I, it turned out that like that showed me, I didn't love baseball that much. Like I was just Mm. decent at it. Um, so I got out of that after my freshman year. And so, yeah, very quickly pivoted into like, oh, I like writing and I like screenwriting and, you know, I like, I like all forms of writing. So maybe I'll just do this writing major and that kind of turned into everything else. Just to, just to track back on, on the, on the going to getting a scholarship. So we don't have this in England, but we hear a lot about it in America, you know, college baseball where it's televised and stuff. You know, and and TV shows mm-hmm. uh, such as Community has taught me that people, yeah, people get scholarships to play sports at university or college. Well, you guys don't need scholarships because you, you guys have free university. Uh, well, Scotland's free. England's England's very sorry. expensive. Uh, well, very expensive compared to, to compared to what? Sorry, I didn't mean well, free. I meant cheaper than us. What What's an average year at a university in England? It's nine grand a year. Let me just check that because I went to uni. Um, and I just know I won't pay it back because I'll never make enough money. Have I been lied to my whole <laughs> life? I thought your guys's was cheaper than ours. No, it's nine. Yeah, it's it's nine thousand a year for, for t- university now for tuition, just tuition. 
Yeah, that's tuition. Yeah, and then you get, and then after that, there's student loans, loans, not grants. So you have to, yeah. you know, pay them back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that's it for most people. Yeah, but I mean, oh. scholarships do exist. Oh, I've been lied to you for so long. Everybody told me your guys's university was cheap, and I just took it at face value. It was. It changed in two thousand and I want to say in two thousand and twelve. Oh well, that ex- that explains. I I graduated. Yeah. I graduated college in twenty ten, so I haven't paid attention to anything since. So how, um, how much was was your yearly fee? Let's see. Ooh. Where I played baseball was a private well, school, so yeah. tuition there was twenty five thousand dollars a year. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then I went to a public university after baseball, and my tuition was. $10,000 a year, but it was going up at the time. And that was just tuition. That wasn't living or books or any of that stuff. Um, so when you got handpicked to play baseball, w- w- that that was like, I imagine your parents were very, or your family were very excited about that. Oh, they were thrilled. Um, that was the only way I was going to get to go to college. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was the, the, the goal since I was 12 was you're going to community college unless you get a scholarship to go to an expensive college. And was that that baseball was going to be a job? Yeah, I mean, I I largely enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, but then you get to that next level, you know, much like mm-hmm. being in a band. As you slowly get to the higher levels of being in a band, you realize like some things are less and less fun. Um, yeah. But I would say that you know, being in a band is a little bit more uh, fulfilling to the ego. I don't know. Baseball was pretty fulfilling too. It was just a weird. It was just a weird divergence in my life. Even if you weren't loving it, it must have been hard to to put your back down um you know at the time it wasn't because i was finally able to go play in bands um i was pretty fed up with it because that whole year it was like get up at 6 a.m go to weights you know then go to class from 8 to 11 or 8 to noon and i'm like falling asleep by the end of that last class and those classes were academic classes oh yeah and like i i'm a i was a pretty good student so they were pretty rigorous classes and then, I, you know, I'm like falling asleep by the end of the last class Then go eat a quick lunch and then go to the field until about 10 or 11 p.m., which was wow. actually like we were practicing more than we were legally allowed to. But there was ways around it that the coaches found. So it was it was like the craziest job that I, I was like, I didn't sign up for this. You know what I mean? I like school and I like baseball, but I don't like him in this level of combination. One thing I find interesting about a lot of uh, uh well I, i'm into cricket and, and one thing i really notice about cricket players is that they are conditioned to play cricket you know what i mean and listen oh, to absolutely coaches. yeah no baseball's the same way you know what i mean you have to you have to breathe it and dream about it and you know what i mean and listen to what do you're what told tell you do what you're told show up where you, you know what i mean show up where you're told to be at this time and if you you know I think one of the things that I struggled the most with was that if somebody else fucked up, I got punished <laughs> because it was like a team sport. In what way? So it was like, oh, that guy was slacking off and showed up late to practice or he did this or he did this in a game that was a bonehead move. So now we're all running because of him. This is your punishment. Like, kind <laughs> of like, hazing. Move. It's not, but, it, but it's coming from the coaches. There's not even hazing. It's like to shame that person for failing. You know what I mean? And baseball's a sport of failure. So whenever like, I, yeah, I don't know. It, I hate that kind of military mentality. It's why I quit playing um, uh, American football after my freshman year of high school because I like, you know, again, I was like a big guy. I should, you know, natural that I would play football. And I showed up and they're like, just yelling at you and running you into the ground. And like, that player showed up 30 seconds late to the field and he didn't hustle. So now we're all going to run for an hour. And you're just like, this is stupid. 
this this doesn't yeah. make you a better person yeah or a better player i mean you can maybe argue that it's making you a more conditioned player but like at what cost because i hated my coaches I, I actually quit the football team i didn't even finish the season i quit like a third of the way through the season and my coach like called me a quitter to everybody and i was like that's fine that's cool you suck dude yeah yeah it's uh it's weird, man. So then you, 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 got in, you got into writing. Yes. How was that transition? Um, it was kind of cool. I, uh, like most things in my life, it was pretty impulsive. So I was, when I was playing baseball and then when I, right, right after I finished, I was actually just a, a regular English major. And I always expected that I was going to become like an academic. I was going to be a professor, you know, teach, teach writing 101 or like, you know what I mean? Like composition classes and teach about books, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. And I was in a class my my junior year, like the first quarter of my junior year, and it was a Hemingway and Fitzgerald class, like t- historically two of my favorite writers up to that point. You know, I was I was a I was a young middle class white kid. Like Hemingway and Fitzgerald were like the dudes, you know. Right. And I remember being in this class where we had just read The Great Gatsby, and I was like, "Oh hell yeah, The Great Gatsby!" The first time I'll be doing like a very critical upper division reading of one of my favorite books ever. And we spent an entire class talking about the use of the color yellow in the book. And it was like an hour and a half lecture on the use of yellow in The Great Gatsby. And I was just like, oh, this is fucking pointless. Fuck off. Criticism is pointless. And I was like, why would I want to be the person who talks about somebody else's book instead of just writing the damn book? You know what I mean? And so I went that I went that day to the to the whatever office and changed my major to writing without it. <laughs> having taken a single writing class at the school. And I was like, I'm just, this is what I'm doing now. Uh, and thankfully it was, it was fine. It was good. So you were writing creatively kind of from, from that moment or were you already writing creatively in, in, in your, in your free time? Um, not as much as I should have been, you know, it was something I dabbled in and that was kind of the, the commitment to, to being kind of a creative, yeah, creative writer. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah, I was like, yeah, I was like 20, almost 21. Yeah, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and then I figured it out. And even then, it was you know it was like dabbling in like because with the with the majors like you take a creative writing class, take a non or you take a fiction class and a nonfiction class and a poetry class, and then you kind of pick you know other things you want to do. And so I was bouncing around a lot until I graduated, and then you know kind of went into screenwriting because it was the one that fit the most, and it was also the one you know I'm from Southern California, and so it was easy to move to Hollywood. And then it was kind of also the one that had the allure of like, oh, and it pays well if you can make it, you know, <laughs> which is a bad thing to chase. How do you look back at that period of time moving to Hollywood? Uh, I mean, now I look at I look back at it as I mean, I'm happy because it led me to my band and to the people I know and the people, you know, people I've dated and stuff like that. But it was also stupid because I could have just been playing music the whole time. But I, I, <laughs> I look at it as like a necessary part of the journey to get to like what I can do now. I couldn't do that when I was 21, 22, but also it would have been cool if I could have. I think there's always that thing, you know, you should have written more songs. You could have spent more time. You shouldn't have spent that night going out late. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's always time to look back and, and regret, but no, it was good. It was, it was fun. I mean, spending your early and mid and late twenties in Los Angeles can be fun if you let it be. How did you meet your director then? He went to the same film school program that I went to, but like a decade before. And so I got, we, he sent an email to the office, like I'm looking for a new assistant and I applied 
and we kind of, you know, took it from there. I had an interview with him and then weirdly my girlfriend at the time also interviewed for the same job. Um, and that was funny cause like we had back to back interviews at his house and we just waited in the car for each other. And then, uh, yeah, it was weird. Uh, and then, yeah, I just, I got the job and she didn't, uh, you know, I'm sure she was fine with it. Um, or not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know. I could see why my 35 year old, like, male director wanted like a young bro to come work for him. Not that I was a young bro, but you know what I mean? I don't know. She was probably more, she was more qualified on the film side of things than me, but I was more qualified on the like assistant and writer's assistant side of things. Just like with the type of personality I have, you know what I mean? I wasn't like, what does a writer's assistant do? Oh man. A lot. I mean, early on a lot of note taking, a lot of organization, a lot of like scheduling, like making sure that he gets to the meetings that he needs to get to when he needs to get to them. Um, then later on it becomes stuff like editing or, you know, helping write certain things, um, for no credit. (laughs) That's, that's a lot of what it is, is you get a lot of creditless work that you do. Um, yeah. You know, I've definitely written some things that, you know, ended up going you know in certain certain projects i'm actually trying to think i don't think anything that's gotten made has anything i've has anything i've done other than like minor minor you know minor fixes but uh yeah it's i mean it's a good thing it's like a good way to kind of learn what to do and like learn i'm so grateful to know how a movie gets made um i mean it's really oh yeah absolutely he's the best guy um so there wasn't any of this kind of like you're like a lower level piece of shit kind of vibe no, 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 not from him at all. I mean, like if you're getting real about it, like there's that level when, you know, both the paychecks come to me when we're on set. <laughs> so then I see what he makes and I see what I make. So like right. that makes me feel like a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> but no, no, he was great. He's He was a great boss. And he also, I was doing the band like most of the time I worked for him. And so there'd be months where I'm like, I'm going to be on tour but I'll, you know, I got you. I got you on email. And he was like, all right, that's fine. So, so Giant Sings Blues came out in 2015. Yes. What, what, what year was, is this that, we, that, we, that you were I started working for? working for him at the end of 2014. Okay. Yeah. And, so, the, and, the, and the band was kind of a hobby, but also kind of this kind of social larger thing. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely, it was definitely a hobby at the time. Uh, so we put out giant in 2015. We did our first tour with the flatliners at the end, like mid end of 2015, like September. Your first tour was with the flatliners. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we were just a local band who didn't do anything. You know what I mean? We're kind of weekend that's warriors. A good, that's a good tour. Yeah. I mean, it especially, wasn't, especially it wasn't that many dates. It was like a week or, you know, a week and a half. But still, you know how punk rock works. If you're, if, if, you know, you, you find out bands about by seeing the tour, the, the support tour. Oh yeah. Supporting bands. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, yeah. Do you remember how that came about that tour? Um, we had put out the album and our friend Sarah lit had discovered it and put it on her like music blog. And she was an assistant to a booking agent and she showed it to him and he was like, Holy crap. And he ended up, he was the booking agent for the flatliners and so they needed somebody for like, you know, a few dates after the, the fat records tour. And we were like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. You know what I mean? And I'm sure it was because, you know, we were young and took very little money and we were available. And I mean, he, Adam is like one of our really good friends and yeah, it was, it was great. 
but you know, it was, uh, yeah, that was our first tour. It was our first experience like on the road with this band too. And, and, you know, the flatliners, they've been going for a long time. They, oh, I mean, yeah. they've got a legacy, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, just the nicest guys in like a perfect kind of first tour. And so we did that tour and then I came home like, you know, while I was on that tour, I got a call from my boss saying, Hey, we have a movie that's shooting in Atlanta and the Dominican Republic for the next four months, five months. And then we're going to shoot a movie in London right after that. And he's like, you good? And I was like, sure. Cause this band is a hobby. So yeah, I, I like immediately after that tour went to Atlanta from like mid September, 2015. And then I wrapped in the Dominican Republic in February of 2016. And so, wow. yeah. And so the band was just on hold. We had to cancel some dates and stuff like that. And so the band was on hold and I, I wrote most of Schmaltz while I was in Atlanta. And then thankfully that London movie got canceled because it, it didn't get canceled. He lost it because of some contractual stuff. And so I was supposed to go straight from the Dominican in mid-February and by March and then do post on the movie in New York City. And then by like April, go straight to London and then Bulgaria until like July. So I think that would have killed the band if I had done that. So I was in I was in Atlanta from september to december and then had two weeks off for christmas and then went to the dominican until mid-february why were you in atlanta uh just because there's production uh rebates there same reason with the dominican there's a huge film industry in atlanta because the state of georgia pays you back a certain percentage of what you spend on certain things so if you come and you spend like the easiest way of putting it is we spent 30 million dollars in a, in the state of georgia and they paid us back 9 million or something like that in rebates That's crazy yeah but it's i mean it's bolstered like an entire industry there so yeah it's cool um atlanta is a very fun city so i was i was lucky to get to live there for a little bit um yeah that movie that movie was a rough like just the hours were rough so i was in a terrible place working on it it, re- it really hit a nerve when you said you know i'll do it because the band's a hobby have you have you struggled with that notion that you're like, oh, band's a hobby, but is it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was this. We laugh because this was our hobby that has become our job with without us realizing it. You know, we would always joke like, oh yeah, the band's just that thing we do, and then all of a sudden we're on tour, and then all of a sudden like it's our entire life. You know, and uh, I mean, I'm grateful it worked out that way because it it let us know what's important to us, and uh, it also let us not have any expectations for anything. I think if you set out and you're like, I'm going to be in a band and this band is going to be successful and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. If those things happen, that's awesome. You're very talented. Like I'm so happy for you. If it doesn't happen, you're probably pretty disappointed. Um, and so a lot of that, a lot of what I think we've been able to kind of manage is because we don't expect anything. So anything that happens to us is very cool. I read the, the I love this band called Violent Soho. Um, oh, who are from same, Australia. same. Have you heard that new record? Everything yeah. is okay. Uh, it's so good. That's really funny. I didn't know you were violent. I I have these very funny memories of listening. I would like put on my playlist of bands who, not like it wasn't an intentional playlist, but it would bounce between bands who like didn't lose their accents when they sang, mm, and yeah. you were on there as well. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> yeah no so it was really funny yeah i have like these very great memories of like violent soho and great cynics albums and like <laughs> you know Brilliant. other bands of that ilk um 
that's, and that's really funny. Yeah, yeah. No, that new album's great. Uh, also on Pure Noise, which is I remember the day that they announced it. I texted, I texted the head of our label, and I was like, "What the hell? Why didn't you tell me you were signing like one of the best bands?" Yeah. Well, I, so I interviewed James, the guitarist, for this podcast, and that's one thing that he said. He was like, "We never expected anything." That's why they're always so stoked. Yeah, yeah. I always got the vibe from them that they're just like a bunch of like, I could be way off base, but just the vibe they give in their music is like a bunch of stone skateboarders who are just like, oh, cool, music. That That is it. I met them <laughs> once and then spoken to James a lot. And he's just like, well, fucking yeah, man. I was like, oh, that's such a bad accent. But he's just like, well, you know, it just is what it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, like, just, yeah. we just did our thing and it happened. And it's like, I mean, yeah, we... We pretty much operate on the same on the same basis. It's gotten a little bit more serious because there's people who depend on us now. Um, like not, they don't depend on us financially yet because we haven't reached that point. But they're depending on us to not fuck it up so that they can, you know, keep having a job. Um, right. I mean, maybe this is a hard question, but how how do you feel about that? The fact that people are relying on you and you're relying on them, and this it's kind of this balancing act where. There's some money, but there's not a lot of money. You know, I think it's I think it's fine. Um, we don't work with people unless we trust them, because we I mean we like we self managed for a very long time. We self booked for a very long time, and so we only kind of take people on when we see the need and when we want. You know, I think it's part of a necess- it's a necessary evil of growth. But at the same time, you know, we were really hesitant to take on a manager. We were really hesitant to work with like a bigger label. And I put them to work. You know what I mean? I'm like, if if you are going to be a part of this, like you're going to work at the same level at which I have pushed for certain things. And you so, have to be brave to do that. What, to put it on them? I think you just have to be brave to be like, hey, if we're going to do this, you have to work for us. Because a lot of other bands, I know I did it at, at moments where I was like, oh yeah, cool. Just do whatever you want, you know? Oh yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I, but again, that, I think that comes with the type of person I am. Where, you know, the person who's concerned about being an overbearing dictator who will also be an overbearing dictator at times. I'm just like, oh, you want to manage us? Okay, well, that's cool. You're going to like, how, like how, and it's never like you work, you work for me. It's like, how can we work together? But you're going to work just as hard as us because otherwise there's no point in us working together. You know what I mean? And thankfully our managers bust their asses for us um, and have helped us immensely with a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, and same thing with the label, you know, the label was like, this is a much bigger contract and there's certain things that I don't love about it. Um, but there's certain things that we couldn't get elsewhere. And it was like, you want to sign us. So like, how's this going to like, how is this going to work with the way that we like to do things? And to their credit, they're like, you guys can go record your own album. You can produce your own album. And we'll have input here and there. And like, it's been a really good kind of relationship. I make it sound way more adversarial than it is, but I think that comes from like my initial, my initial reaction to somebody trying to make money off of us when we don't make very much money off of us is to be like, well, what's, what's your game? Historically, that's happened to every band ever. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, but thankfully, thankfully they work their asses off for us. And I think that just comes from like trusting and and picking the right people to work with. I think, you know, not just, not just blindly going into something, but really trying to vibe and and make sure that that's somebody you want to get, you know, get into bed with. And it's why I have such a problem with other people who make money off of us without any of my say. So like, you know, venues that take merch cuts, (laughs) 
It's mm-hmm. like, well, this is how our organization does. It. It's like, I don't give a shit. Like I'm playing your venue. You don't take more money from us, you know? Mm. And we're reaching the point where we're playing some places where it's like, no, that's just how it is. And it's one of the things that'll eternally drive me crazy. Cause we like, we can't change it. Like our band personally cannot change it. It would take somebody like, I don't know who's a giant Lord. I don't know. Like Lord being like, I'm not going to pay merch cuts at this, at this venue. Like that would, that's how it would change. And even then it would probably not work. But like we can't be like, we're not playing. Like we're, we're not giving you our merge cuts, this venue. Cause they'd be like, cool, go play somewhere else. And then it's like, Oh no, they own 90% of the venues in the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think anyone listening to this, that's in a band coming up that, that, that you know, hearing you talk like that is, is inspirational really. <laughs> cool. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just so easy to lay down. Oh, I mean, we still, I mean, at the end of the day, we still have like on the, on these bigger tours we just did, there were days where we have to lay down because a, it's not our tour and B it's built into the contract and C it's either do it or don't play. Um, and then, but then it becomes a thing of like, I don't know. We go back to that kind of DIY ethos where it's like, okay, you're going to take a merch cut from us. Cool. Here's the most fake numbers you've ever seen. And they know you're lying to them and they try to call you on it. And I get very blatant. I'm like, fucking, I dare you to call me on these numbers being fake. Like, I, I know how to lie. I will lie to you. Like, you know, whether it's like, Oh, get the merch loaded out of the venue as quickly as possible. So they can't do a count out or like, let's just dip out of here and leave them a note that says, here's our account. You know, um, how many shirts do you sell a show on a good night, a medium a, good night. on a medium? How many shirts? How many shirts? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to look at a spreadsheet. I don't, we thankfully, you know, Greg, we brought Greg along to do, to do merch this last time. And so i I saw the numbers at the end of the night, but I never saw the actual counts. I have like, I'd have to look at a spreadsheet, but it was growing. It was good. I mean, I'll say that like one of the things coming off because of COVID people were like, Oh, we'll just like, and we put up all the stuff on the merch store. And I was, I was talking to Dan from the one years about this. And we we're just like, yeah, the greatest month of our lives on our merch store is probably equal to like one or two nights at a show selling. So that's why it's been such a, it's been such a weird thing. Cause it's like, it's a band aid, but it's a bandaid for a much bigger wound. Yeah. 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 So, so getting a manager, did that overlap with having a job? Because obviously your manager is going to have interest and make sure that you're not just going to. Yeah. So, um, they came on right around the time that I was going to lose my job, but everybody else still had their jobs. Um, but no, they're very, they're very keen on us surviving so that we can, uh, keep making music so that, you know, the benefits will be long-term instead of short-term, you know? And I think that's a thing that a lot of, a lot of people, like a lot of managers, a lot of good managers are smart about is being like, well, we're not going to, you know, there's been times where they're like, we're not going to commission you on this because why would we, it's going to cripple you. So like, you know, working with people who understand that they can like not make money off of you right away so that maybe five years from now they can make steady money off of you, I think is an, an important type of consideration to make. Um, I don't know. That feels very insider, but I think that's, you know, that's like a smart thing to think about is, you know, working with people who aren't just seeing it for the money, but are seeing it for like a career growth type thing, which again, we're really lucky to have because actually I don't think our managers have ever brought up money once to us. Like in that, you know what I mean? Even like with this, even with this pandemic, they're not, they weren't like, 
hey man, like where's that commission for this thing? You know what I mean? That that shit never comes up. And were you losing your job because you just weren't around? Yeah, my boss, we had another movie that was going into production after Fantasy Island, which I, I missed Fantasy Island because what was I doing? I just didn't want to go to Fiji. It was going to be in Fiji for like two months. And we had the we had like a tour or something. And I was like, I don't want to miss that to go to Fiji. Because again, spending two months making a movie in Fiji actually doesn't sound that interesting to me, which I know is spoiled. But it's if you understood the work, like, so being a director's assistant is not not even that let's take it bigger making a movie is not a glamorous thing it's a very boring thing um i don't think a lot of people realize that it's a lot of like you'll spend an hour and a half setting up to get like a 30 second shot and then then you move everything again and do it again um so you're talking like you know 12 to 16 hour days uh, and as in a director's assistant, it's even worse. Cause if I'm, if I'm creatively involved, like I love filmmaking when I'm the filmmaker, cause I'm in creatively involved and I'm making choices. But like, it was like, make sure my boss had coffee, you know, and then stand behind him for 12 hours. Yeah. So was that an awkward, was, was that an awkward conversation you had with him? With no, I told him I wasn't going to, you know, I, I was very honest. I'm like, I'm probably not going to be around for that next movie either and he had offered me a bigger job cause he was getting like a, I don't even know if it went through, but he was negotiating uh, what's called an overhead deal. So like he would be at a studio or at a production company and they'd give him an office and give him an assistant. And then everything he would, everything he would work on would be for them to start. And so he was talking about possibly getting an overhead deal. Um, I mean, not, that makes it sound like it's something you just choose to do. But he was in, he was figuring out if he was getting one of those or not. And he's like, I'm probably going to have an assistant in this. And would you like that job? And I knew as soon, like, there was two ways that conversation could have gone because the band was kind of doing its thing. But if he had been like, hey, do you want to come on as my, as a producer? You know what I mean? And like, this will be our business and this and that. I would have been like, oh, okay, this is something to seriously consider. But the second he was like, do you want to come be, my assistant <laughs> i'm like dude i've been with you for five years i'm not going to just switch to another version of the same job just at a studio you know what i mean there was no mobility it was like do you want to come do the same thing but officially you know what i mean and so i was like i think it's probably time because i'm gonna be gone a lot that we find somebody more permanent who's not in a band who's kind of doing its thing and he was very cool about it and like i found his new assistant and then i hired his new assistant like the day I was moving. Like I didn't tell him that I was just leaving LA and I was like, all right, well I'm out. Here's your new assistant. Uh, have fun. And that was, you know what I mean? That was, uh, that was the last, uh, the last professional interaction I saw. I saw him over the summer when, when we were back doing the album in LA, but no, it was great. He was totally, he was totally fine with it. And I think everybody's, everybody's bosses were pretty cool about it. I think, I think Kyle has the only, only boss who wasn't cool with it but kyle (laughs) kyle has a great quitting story where like it was right before this menzingers tour and he had asked for the time off and they like they knew he was in a band and he's taken time off before and i don't mean i don't mean to steal his story but it's such a good story i hope he's okay with i hope he's okay i won't i won't name any names or anything but he like walked in to work like three days before we were supposed to leave for tour and his boss is like, Hey, what's this time off? I haven't approved this. And we're talking like, 
not just like a week. We're talking like eight weeks off. <laughs> and his boss is like, I haven't approved this. And he's like, well, it's my band. We're going on the biggest tours of our career. And she's like, well, I'm not approving it. And he's like, all right, well, here are my keys. <laughs> and he just quit. And I was so proud of him because he like actually likes cool. his job. Uh, but it was, it was great. It's such a great story. Like, I wish I could have had that story. Yeah. Yeah. That's so dazed and confused. Yeah. Right. It's so good. Um, so yeah, that he was the most, I, he was the second most reason to lose his job. And then Ruben lost his job while we were on tour and then everything shut down. So he's just, you know, doing delivery driving right now as much as he can to survive. I mean, we're all just like trying to survive. So Kyle is the most punk member of Spanish Love Songs. Oh, I hate when you say it like that. I mean, I guess <laughs> it hurts me to say. Um, yeah, no, that's like the most punk rock. You know, I was all professional and like gave notice and <laughs> helped him find his, helped him find my replacement. You know, <laughs> Dylan, thanks so much. That's such an incredible story. Oh yeah, of course, man. Thank you. Uh, like I like I was telling you on email, I was so excited that you asked me to do this. I love I love this idea and I love your podcast and I constantly am upset that i didn't think of it first simple ideas no nah, it's good it's good it's uh it's fun go back to the doll queue please don't tell p from the pub because he'll judge me but i don't mind i've been paying my taxes on time i'm not central not essential I've never worked for the NHS Yeah, I've clapped hands and I beat pants Put away the kitchen utensils now Don't let your P45 